This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast collaboration from InterVarsity Press and CT Creative Studio. Never been a fabricator, but like MOK, I've been an agitator. Hosted by me, Esau McCauley. Carmen Imes is a professor of Old Testament at Prairie College in Three Hills, Alberta. And we're big in Alberta. I think they're like zero in on our Alberta network. Why did I really want Carmen Imes? She had this this blog called Seminary Mom. And it's like those two things that were like juxtaposed with one another. She was embracing her identity as someone who was seminary-oriented, who was thinking about theological education. But she was a mother and a wife. I can say that I knew you back in your seminary mom blog days. You can say that. Before everybody (laughs) fell in love with, you know, your book and the things that you're doing, I used to go to your website to try to figure out what it meant to be a Bible scholar. And when I was looking into PhD programs and I visited Wheaton College when I was thinking about it, who did I see on campus? Carmen Imes, who was working on a PhD there. And it was only a little bit creepy that you had found my blog and read it before we met. (laughs) I was like, seriously? You've read my blog? Nobody's read my blog. I think that the most effective teachers are the ones who are passionate. I mean, a great teacher can make me care about law for 30 minutes (laughs) or math. And I think that her love for the Lord and her love for the Old Testament bleeds from her. And I think that it's it's impossible to listen to Carmen and not think, let me open up Isaiah again and see what he has to say. As a kid... I remember my favorite book being Isaiah. I started reading through the Bible in second grade. I wanted to get through the whole thing. It took me until fourth grade, but I was like, this is an amazing book. I want to read it. So sometimes when you grow up and there's the, there's the Christian story of going up in a Christian home, going through the season of doubt, and then kind of coming back around. But yours seems to be something, and that's like the disrupt. That's the, that's the disruptor's brand, right? You get people who were who sometimes used to be cynical, and now they're not. But what is it like to to have that not be a part of your testimony? To just grow up as a Christian who maintained kind of something of a consistent development track. Do you ever feel strange, or I mean, I guess are, do you feel strange for being normal? Is that <laughs> yeah, I wish my experience was more normal. Yeah. For for more people. I don't feel bad that I don't have this. Like I, I look back and I don't have a rebellious season of my life. Um, my disruption was always in the direction of faith. It was always like wanting people to be more serious. I remember in our high school, you know, they come out with the yearbook every year. And the company that made our yearbooks, that produced our yearbooks, had this special like leaflet that like it was full color, you know, like a a 10 page insert that you could add to your yearbook. That was like big news from the year. Who were the top entertainers? You know, what was going on in the world in 1995? 
I remember being totally scandalized that my school purchased these and put them in the yearbooks because there were people on the entertainment page who were not wearing enough clothing <laughs> and who were not and who were singing songs that didn't glorify God. And I'm like, why are we endorsing this? I mean, I was I was a passionate kid. I want to hang out with young Carmen and have her call me <laughs> lukewarm. I, oh, man. So I don't know of anybody who wants to hang out with the young Carmen. <laughs> when did you experience this idea that studying the Bible was something that you wanted to do? Were you a Bible major in undergrad or was it something that came later? I was probably about 12 when I sensed a call to missions. And so all through high school, well, my friends were going to the mall and shopping and figuring out the right kind of hairspray. I was like pouring through missions magazines, trying to figure out where in the world God was calling me to serve. And I was literally on probably 20 different mailing lists of different mission organizations. And that's what I read through high school. So I knew that I wanted a college that would train me to be a missionary. And uh, I found Multnomah Bible College and decided I wanted to be a Bible translator because if the Bible's the coolest thing ever, then what about all the people who don't have it in their language? They can't even discover this amazing narrative. So I was going to be a Bible translator. So I found Multnomah. They had a missions major and a Greek major. And I figured that's what you needed to be a Bible translator. So I went. So it's interesting that you talked about reading missionary magazines. Mm -hmm. I think that you and my wife would be a pretty good. I think y'all would like each other. I'd because love to when, meet her. When we when we met in college, um, she said, like, I asked her what does she want to do. She said she wanted to do medical missions. And she mm -hmm. spent her whole life reading about missionary work. Mm -hmm. and one of the prerequisites for us dating was that we, I had to agree that I was going to go into, the, into wherever she wanted to go to do mission work. Yeah, and I was such a fool. I wasn't so. I was so in love. I I don't care. Like, what if you tell us we got to go to the moon? <laughs> as long as we're there together, was, it was one of those things. I remember mm. thinking, but you're a doctor. Like they pay doctors a lot of money. Why are we giving up all of this good doctor money to go to the mission mm. field? Mm -hmm. And I was supposed to be a Christian, and she's like, "You yeah. lukewarm person." But no, yeah, yeah. No. she's she's a disruptor at heart. <laughs> she she's wanting to disrupt the narrative of the American dream because there's something more important than that. Yes, and I get, and I get, I get that there's more than the American dream. But I was like, she was rejecting the American dream. I never got it. Allow me, yeah. allow me to. I was, I grew up in, you know, um, the rough part of town in Huntsville. Sure. So allow me to like to have a little bit of something. Dream a little. Let me get disillusioned yeah. with my wealth. <laughs> I have to give it up. My my idea of like the 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 most bleak future I could imagine as a kid, as a teenager, was buying a house in suburban America and having two kids in a minivan and just like settling. Like to me, that would, that would be the biggest travesty because it would mean I let go of this passion God put in my bones, translating the Bible in a jungle somewhere. And, and I call home, I think I want to be a teacher. And she said, duh. And she started to sort of retell my childhood through her eyes. And she had seen this thread of teaching it went way back to the nursery. My mom, like she tells a story of coming to pick me up from the nursery. I was three years old and she comes to pick me up after church 
And, you know, you like come up to the door, the door's got a window in it so you can kind of peek in and see what's going on. And she peeks in the window and sees that the teachers of the class are like sitting in the back of the classroom, like with their hands folded. They're not doing anything. She's like, what's going on? So she tips her head so she can see the whole classroom. And there I was in the front of the room. I had all the kids lined up in chairs and I had a Bible open on my lap upside down because I didn't know how to read yet. And I was preaching. I was telling them, Jesus loves you. Yes, I know because the Bible tells me so. Right. So, and I and I just, we were, I guess, playing church or something, but I was the preacher, the teacher, and she, my parents were both like, uh, uh-oh, <laughs> like, what do we have on our hands? So when I call her from college and say, I think I want to teach, she's like, of course you want to teach. This is what you were born to do. So I, I began thinking about using teaching in missions rather than Bible translation. And then one step led to another. Um, I was asked to be a lab instructor for a Bible study methods class, and it gave me a chance to actually teach college students while I was a college student. And it was amazing. I just, it was like I discovered my own skin. Like I could, I found what I was born to do. So I just started to lean into that. And one step led to another, and pretty soon I had a PhD. Did you um, at some point think about doing it in the church or did you always feel a, a pull towards the academic version of teaching? I don't think I had ever seen a woman do it in church before. Not that I had very many models in the academy either. Were you ever told at some point that um, women can't teach in churches or was it something that you never saw? It was a very vigorous debate going on in my church growing up. And my grandparents, my, my, my grandfather in particular, was a very vocal member of the church leadership against women teaching. And so I remember growing up like with this debate sort of swirling around me and feeling a, a huge sense of pride in the fact that my grandpa would stand up for what the Bible teaches, even when other people want to want to change it or let uh, feminism have its day or something. Like, I remember just really being proud of him. So yes, I was told in pretty obvious ways that that wasn't for me, but I didn't mind it at the time. I do think that a lot of, a lot of the conversation around women in ministry and those kinds of things are people who are doing their best to read yeah. the Bible fairly. It's emotionally easier if we can put all of the bad guys and girls in one bucket and all of the good guys and good girls in mm -hmm. another bucket. But this is your grandfather, someone who took the scripture yeah. seriously and who maybe yeah. is in some sense responsible for the family continuing to maintain their Christian faith in the context of um, an ever-shifting society. And I have friends who are complementarians who love the Lord and who are reading the Bible as best as they can. And I have friends who are egalitarian. And so that difficult for you as you are beginning to make this journey as at least an academic? My grandfather died when I was 15. And so by the time I got, got to college, he wasn't in the picture anymore. My, I, my grandmother still was, and I knew she had strong feelings. Um, and so I did wrestle with it. The first sort of shift in my own thinking on this issue happened in college when one of my professors approached me and said, Carmen, I've noticed you in class, and I wonder if you'd be interested in being a lab instructor. And and this was for that Bible study methods class. And I, I said, is that is that like biblical? Like you're, I'm a woman and you're asking me to teach a Bible class 
does that work? And he said, let's let's have a conversation about it. So he, he took me to his office and he took me through all the key passages and he showed me how he read them. And I believe he's a complementarian, but he saw space for women teaching, teaching Bible and teaching Bible to men, and especially in a in a academic context outside the church. And so he opened up space for me to to use my gifting. And I I I was what what I wrestled with was I feel this passion to teach, like I I. I can't not teach because it was what I was born to do. And the thing I'm most passionate about is the Bible. I have to get the message out. But there's this rub, like I'm a woman. So how do I do this? And and so being a lab instructor was my first sort of trial run. And there were moments that were hard. I had students who I know were really upset to be in a class taught by a woman and gave me pushback and were kind of obnoxious in class because of it. But I was teaching at that time under this professor's authority. So I could say, well, if you believe in male authority over women teachers, I'm teaching under his authority. So you can go talk to him about it. He's the one who asked me to be here. So you wouldn't be a teacher if a complementarian hadn't come to you and given you space and opportunity. That's right. Did you ever feel like because of that kind of pushback that it wasn't worth it that you should give up teaching and maybe do something else or teach only women or something like that? There were moments where I was really frustrated. I remember coming home and just trying to process that there's this man in my class. He was married. He was probably in his 30s and I was probably like 21 teaching the class. So he was older than I was. He he had military experience. He had served with YWAM. Like he had all this life experience. And I could just see on his face when he walked into the classroom, like, ugh, I am not going to get my money's worth in this class. And for the first couple of weeks, he wouldn't even look up from the table. Like as I was teaching, he just, his eyes were down. And I went to talk to my mentor, Ray Lubeck, about it. And I said, Ray, what do I do to, like, how do I win him over? He said, Carmen, don't give it another thought. Just do your thing. Be excellent at what you do. And it's up to him, you know, how to respond. And I saw him come around. And by the end of the semester, he was telling all his friends to sign up for my section of the class because it was amazing. And he he told his wife to, like, his wife came and took my class the next semester. So I felt like that. I, I needed to learn to not be inhibited by having a detractor in the room and just to do the thing God called me to do and let let things fall where they may. That historically, there's been more women who are teaching Bible in more progressive spaces. And what, did you see that? And did that make you feel like more isolated to be a woman of kind of evangelical conviction who wanted to teach the Bible? Yeah. So as soon as I was in seminary and I, w- I knew I was on a PhD path and I started going to academic meetings. So every year, as you know, there's the Evangelical Theological Society and then the Institute for Biblical Research and then Society of Biblical Literature back to back. So even so the ETS is the first one and it's quite theologically conservative and women make up like 7% of membership. And when I when I go to ETS, or at least at first, when I went to ETS, I would feel like this profound sense of being a minority, this profound sense that I don't belong here. It's like showing up at men's retreat. I, and I can't, f- I, like, the, there's never, ever a line for the women's bathroom. there, And there's a line coming out the door in the men's bathroom. Like, just this sort of... It, 
um, yeah, it's a disruptive experience to me to be there and feel like I'm not sure I belong here. And there were certainly people who didn't want me to be there. So your very presence felt like an act of rebellion. It, it most definitely was. Yeah. And, and I saw many other women who would come and engage for a few years while they were in their master's program and then stop going because they were tired of not being wanted. And so they would, they would just kind of cut out and move over to IBR and SBL, stop going to ETS. And I, and I said, if we, if we keep doing that, then the problem will never be solved. So I, so, okay, so I go from that where I feel theologically at home, but my gender is a problem, and then move over to the Society of Biblical Literature where my gender is more than welcome. Like there's lots and lots of women at SBL, but as you say, it's a much more progressive space. And so my, my theological convictions are what make me feel very out of place there sometimes. And so that's, you wanted to be a Bible scholar. So how did you get to, why, why did you choose the Old Testament? Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to tell you a, a couple of good things that happened in the New Testament. And then you can tell me whether or not okay. there, Jesus shows up. I know there's the Oh, yeah, the Old that's Testament. good. Like Jesus is there. Yeah, There's this whole good. death and resurrection. Big deal. Yep, big Pentecost, deal. Pentecost, early church. Mm-hmm. Paul yep. writes a lot of stuff. There's, yep. there's the there's the eschatological transformation of all things in the Book of Revelation. So I'm just yeah. saying, a, and it's Greek, and so it's like it, Greek is a really easy language to learn. <laughs> I tried to learn Hebrew, and like they didn't even. <laughs> if you don't know what a word means in Hebrew, for those of you who don't know, in Greek, if we don't know something in the New Testament, we can just look at cognate texts that are. I mean, we can look across Greek literature. If you don't know something yeah. in Hebrew, you got to go to Syriac and Ugaritic and all of this other stuff. So, like, why yeah. would someone <laughs> choose to do a discipline where the, the the primary text, the Hebrew scriptures, there aren't a lot of other, you know, ancient Hebrew manuscripts that you can use, and you mm-hmm. find yourself doing all of this ancient interesting history? It just feels so, so hard, and it's big. <laughs> <laughs> People are going to think yeah. this, 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 the Old Testament is actually like three quarters <laughs> of our Bible. Of the Bible. So yeah. why did, and, and, I, and I really do. And I, and I, and I say that half jokingly, but the Old Testament PhD and what it requires to become competent in the Old Testament is a lot. And so it was not a small undertaking. So when I say like, why did you choose the Old Testament? I actually do mean, what was it about it that, that spurred you to make that effort? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I looked around me and I saw, well, lots of people are reading the New Testament. Lots of people already like it. They they go and they read about Jesus and resurrection and new creation and all that great stuff. But but a lot of people in my spaces didn't know what to do with the Old Testament. And I felt like that was the place where the need was. Like if we could come to the Old Testament and we could recapture it, if we could sort of, if I could unlock it for people and help them to love it, as their scripture, then I would be making a bigger difference. Sorry, sorry to you as a New Testament scholar. Than if I was like trying to unlock the New Testament because there's so many people who are teaching it. Yes, already. I, I, I'm a Paul scholar, and I'm going to confess that there are too many Paul scholars. Yeah, and I've actually there's asked, so many books. <laughs> I know I've asked for no one. No one listens to me, but I'm asking for a moratorium on books about justification because there's oh, yeah. so many. There's an unending like wave of books about the nuances of salvation, as important as those issues are, there are the hinterlands of the Old Testament that remain unexplored. Yeah. And, and, and you're correct that a lot of people don't understand the Old Testament. And, and there is this kind of functional Marxianism that happens where Jesus is the good guy and he's come in to, like, you know, rescue or save, you know, cr- 
religion from like the mean God of the Old Testament. But are there like some common misconceptions that you think people have about the Old Testament that you try to undo in your work? I'm following my mentor, Daniel Block, in in my approach to the Old Testament. I want to help people rediscover that this is the same God. Like this is, you know, people look, people go to the Old Testament looking for Jesus and they want to find like types of Christ or whatever. You don't need to look that hard to find Jesus in the Old Testament. He's Yahweh. Yes. Like, like Yahweh is like pouring out his grace on his people and showing them mercy time and time again and rescuing them from slavery and bringing them to a place of abundance and showing them how he wants them to live. There is so much richness in the Old Testament, but but we miss it because it's such a cross-cultural experience to, to read the Old Testament. We're, we're entering another culture and another time that are so far away from ours, it just seems weird. And so it looks, it looks patriarchal. It looks, um, looks like there's sexism and racism and, and violence that all seem like they should, we shouldn't associate. Why would we worship a God associated with those things? So we unhitch from it. One of the things that um, I try to say to my students, because they'll say something like, oh, there wasn't this personal relationship with God in the Old Testament. I was like, well, like Abraham literally talks to God. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much more personal you can have. Then they're like having a conversation back and forth. And then they all have as their life verses, like the Lord is my, like this, this intimate idea that God is shepherding me through life from Psalm 23. Or they say the Old Testament is legalistic. And I was like, well, you you use Psalm fifty one. It's this wonderful example of God's graciousness, and God appears in. in That's the in the Old Testament. Testament. I know the Old Testament. You, yeah. you might think that God's character is consistent three times, and so <laughs> I'm now making your case for you. But when the Lord reveals Himself, it's the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, abounding in mercy, and so it is this sense in which we tend to think that in order for Christianity to be, I guess sustainable it has to be more of a radical break than the fulfillment of yeah the, um, yeah the promises of the old testament even that verse that you just quoted the lord the lord compassionate and gracious slow to anger abounding in love who does not leave the guilty unpunished and that's the part where we're like oh yeah there it is there's the wrath <laughs> see he's out to get us and i want to say if you are a victim of of genocide or if you're a victim of rape if you're a victim of violent crime it's good news that Yahweh does not leave the guilty unpunished. He is looking out for the oppressed. One of the things that that evangelical students often ask me about, I hear this the most, about like, what about God's judgment? And they struggle with this idea of God judging. He says, shouldn't be God be compassionate and merciful? And I say, in the African-American context, God's judgment is something in which we glory. Yeah. Because the things that are done to... Now, it's not that we that we want people to suffer. But no. we want to say that like, we you want, want it God. to be set right. Yes. You want, and, and, and so that it, ma- it matters that these things actually happen to us. You went beyond just doing the Old Testament, but you're, you're, you're the book that is bearing God's name. And you're talking about what, what are you trying to get people to understand in that book and about what happened at Sinai? And what do you think that people misunderstand? What are you trying to get them to see? I, I want people to see that if you want to understand who you are and what you are meant to do with your life, you've got to go back to Sinai because it's at Sinai where God meets his covenant people and he tells them who he is and he tells them who they are and he shows them what they're here for. 
And, and that is the same story that's connected all the way through into Jesus and beyond. And the New Testament authors connect us with that story. If we, if we just say, nah, I'd rather read the Gospels, we're missing out on our entire reason for being. Now, that is a provocative statement to say for a Christian to understand who they are. Yeah. They need to return to Sinai. Yeah. Because didn't Paul say Christ came to set us free from the law? So, <laughs> what do you, so unpack that a little bit when you talk about how Sinai helps us to reveal who we are. Yeah, of course, um, Paul. The relationship between Paul and the law is a is a topic that comes up a lot. I said on Facebook yesterday, I threw out a quote that's generating some interesting discussion. I said, "God did not send Jesus to save us from the law. God sent Jesus to save us from ourselves." And, 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 and yet we think, we often think as Christians, oh, glory be that I don't have to think about the law. Those poor Israelites that they had to go through and, and do all this stuff to earn, to earn God's favor. And we're just set, we just get to rest in Jesus. And that's, that's a misunderstanding of the law. And it's a misunderstanding of Jesus. Well, if I can step in as the Paul scholar. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) For a moment and say, and not disrespecting your acumen at all. I want to say mm-hmm. that, like, Paul does go through this whole argument in Romans 7 to make the point that the law is holy, just, and good, but I am someone who's sold under sin. And so Paul seems to make the distinction between the sin, that, that sin took, in, took advantage of the law and produced in me all these kinds of things. And Paul even said if there was a law that was written that could have made man righteous, the justification would have come through the law. And so Paul makes it in these, in these, in these, and Paul, when he actually talks about, like, what the Christian ethical life actually looks like, what does he tend to quote? The law. And other thing, and sorry, this is my last like Paul thing. Paul is not negating, when Paul is arguing about justification by faith, he is using Genesis. You know what Genesis is a part of? It's the Torah. So when Paul is saying that Genesis 15 is this foundational idea for understanding how we become right with God, he's saying that the law itself testifies to how man is reconciled to God. And so you can't even articulate justification by faith apart from the works of the law without yourself quoting the law. And so what you what you have in Paul's theology is an inner dialogue between two Jewish Christian groups about the nature of the, the the binding aspect of the law for the Christian. And Paul's point I would want to contend is not that the law is bad because he allows Jewish Christians who feel so compelled to keep the law as long as it's not the basis of one justification. He's just saying that you can't impose that law on Gentiles who believe in Christ. But you, you also use the language of um, Christians who want to kind of unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. I think that's kind of a, a, a very subtle allusion to this idea that the Old Testament is so outdated and such a barrier to people that um, that in order to effectively evangelize and do mission and do ministry, we need to get rid of it. So what do you think we would lose if we actually followed that advice? I, I think we would get a flat New Testament that's that's basically incomprehensible. Like if we're just not going to have the Old Testament, then we we get this portrait of Jesus that's very flat. It's in light of the Old Testament stories 
that Jesus steps on the stage and he comes as true Israel and and as Yahweh in the flesh. And it makes it makes the he pops off the page. I blogged a long, long time ago about Jesus in 3D. I don't know if you read read those. (laughs) Yeah, you probably did. I mean, this is years ago already. Um, But just without the Old Testament, we don't know what problem Jesus is coming to solve. We, we don't know, and, and it's not the law. <laughs> um, so, so Jeremiah 30, 31, the New Covenant passage, is one that I talk about in my book. And we often assume that the New Covenant means that there was something wrong with the Old Covenant, so we're getting rid of it and we've got a new one. I see the New Covenant as a renewed covenant. It's new in the same way that God's mercies are new every morning in Lamentations chapter 3. It's it's refreshed. And if you if you read Jeremiah 31 carefully, the reason the covenant's being being renewed is not because there was something wrong with the covenant, it's because there was something wrong with the people. They needed inner transformation. So, as it relates to um you made a strong cl- claim of continuity between the old covenant and what you're calling the renewed covenant. Mm-hmm. But you would acknowledge that there's some differences. And so what ways are are the differences between like the covenant that the Christians are under now mm-hmm. compared to the covenant at Sinai? We no longer need a temple uh, and we no longer need sacrifices because we've got the once for all high priest, once for all sacrifice, perfect sacrifice for all time, as Hebrews talks about. Um, so the Torah laws that have to do with the temple establishment no longer apply in the same way. The Torah laws that have to do with the distinction between Jew and Gentile and ethnic distinction don't apply in the same way because we're in a different era where the the gospel is going out now to all nations. And that shift happens in the early church. And I would just like to point out that in Acts 15, when the early church is making the decision about what to do with Gentiles, they appeal to the Old Testament to make their decision. So they are not unhitching from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is informing this new season in the life of God's people. So if you were to give some advice to pastors and lay people who want to begin to understand um, the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, beside, I mean, you could say buy my book. That's the first thing I would say. <laughs> yeah, buy, that's the first thing. <laughs> learn how to bear God's name by um, Brian yeah. Carmen's book. But what, is there an attitude or a posture towards Bible reading that you that you talk about in your book or that you display in your book that helps people appreciate the Old Testament more? Because there, there has to be a method, right? Because there's a method mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. separating the Old Testament. Is there is there an attitude towards Scripture interpretation that you might give as a key to how you bring these two things mm-hmm. together? Sure. I think what's implicit in all of my Bible classes is that I'm trying to help students read read the Bible through literary, historical, and theological lenses. I, I picture it as like a three-legged stool that you you don't you can't have a stool with just two legs. You've got to attend to the literary design of the text. You've got to attend to its historical context and you've got to attend to where where does it sit in the overall theological drama that that we have in scripture. Um, and so I think Attending to all three of those helps us to not distort scripture and and make it mean something that it doesn't mean. And it, I, you know, sometimes I see people feeling like, oh, this, okay, 
people do this, but I'm going to be more specific. I see Augustine doing this a lot. I read through Augustine's commentary on the Psalms last summer, and I saw him doing this over and over um, w- without minimizing his enormous contribution to Christian theology and church history. Big shout out to Augustine, but we, we're about to come for you. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Augustine's a wonderful, wonderful contribution to the church, wonderful gift to the church. But one thing I see him doing is anytime a text is too historically tied. So he's reading through the Psalms. If a Psalm has too many references to like actual places, actual people, and it's not just like spiritual sounding, then he tries to allegorize it to get himself out of that historical context so that it can relate more broadly. I think the opposite impulse needs to happen. I think when a Psalm is really got a lot of historical references, we should go learn about those places. We should go learn about those people and and try to piece together what is this historical reality to which the psalmist is pointing. And I think when we do that well, the 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 application, the spiritual takeaway for us is all the more vivid. Because to me the good news is that that Yahweh works on the pages of human history. Like he's he's coming into our spaces, into, into politics, into education, into family relationships, into conflict. That's where he does his work. It's not in this like pie in the sky, cloud, you know, disembodied thing that we're aspiring to. It's it's gritty. In your book, you said that the priest gives the blessing and he praises places God's name upon the people. Can you say a little Mm -hmm. bit more about what you're getting at there? Sure. Yeah. Um, My dissertation was on the command not to take the Lord's name in vain. And I retranslated it and and re-examined it um, because it actually doesn't say anything in that sentence about speech. It, I don't think the command is prohibiting us from saying God's name or using God's name in oaths or magic or what i don't think that's what it's about so is that that's the stereotype of growing up we say oh you yeah. say a guy's name in vain oh you say a guy's name in vain yeah yeah and, uh, we don't notice we don't say anyone else's name in vain like i i can't take esau <laughs> macaulay's name in vain yes right like we don't use that phrase about anything but god's name and it's only because of this command but i don't think we've been reading it rightly i think the command is better translated um you shall not bear the name of yahweh your god in vain and the idea is that at Sinai, Yahweh is is coming to this group of people and he's saying, you are mine. You belong to me. He's claiming them as his own. And in effect, he's putting an invisible brand on them or invisible tattoo to claim them. And so now the, the command is don't go out and live like you don't belong to me. Like bearing his name in vain would be saying you belong to God, but living no differently than your neighbors. That makes sense of a lot of the Old Testament where God talks about how the name of Yahweh is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles yes. because of Israel. And it's not yes. because Israel's saying bad things about Yahweh. It's no. because in context, Israel's um it's supposed to be a light to the nations, but what happens to the light yeah. to the nations is itself yeah. a part of kind of exploitative and oppressive and and rebellious and sinful activity. Yeah. This is this yeah. is this is Romans, right? Where Paul talks about how um 
you who criticize the Gentiles, do yourself do those things. And he goes yep. to this long critique that are all Bible passages, right? This isn't Paul mm-hmm. engaging in anti-Semitism. He's engaging yeah. in this long history of prophetic critique of Israel for his lack of holiness. And so you're saying then, I don't, we can't, I don't want to give too much away. So if you want to figure out the rest of what she wants to say about this, you yeah. can actually well, uh, purchase the book. But it is something, I don't want to give away like all of it, but I just want to, I want to whet their appetites. In Acts chapter 9, Saul is on the road to Damascus and he sees the blinding light and he hears the voice and whatever. Ananias is told to go pray for him. And the Lord tells him, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name. And actually in Greek, it's to bear my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. So Paul, it, Saul, Paul's conversion is a calling to bear God's name, to bear Jesus' name. So he's going to, in the same way that the people of Sinai were given this identity, they would carry to the nations. Yeah. Paul is given this identity to carry to the nations. You make me wish that I was still an undergrad so I could take some of your Old Testament courses. Oh, that'd be fun. <laughs> I, I, I've, I, I've, learned, I've learned so much. Can I ask a question real quick? Wait, here's Rich's one question. (laughs) Go ahead. You've talked about sort of two passions of yours, the Old Testament studies piece, getting the church to care about Old Old Testament studies, and then Mm -hmm. um, being sort of a a woman academic. Those are two things that strike me as uphill battles. Hmm. What predisposes you to take on those two things at the same time? Yeah, I, it's a it's a fair question, except that as a woman in biblical scholarship, I don't have the luxury of not having women be my issue. Like Esau doesn't have the luxury of not having race be his issue, right? right like right. people come to me and ask about gender because I'm a woman. And if I wasn't, then maybe I could ignore that issue. But I, I've found over the years that more and more I can't ignore it. So, you know, last year... I started a Facebook group for women members of ETS. We were talking about ETS earlier and how it can be such an uncomfortable space for women. And for years, I've felt like, why doesn't somebody start a Facebook group where we can network, find roommates, encourage each other? And I just kept waiting and waiting for someone to do it. Finally, I tried to get somebody else to start it. And they said, Carmen, you should do this. So I've started this group. There's like uh, 280 women in the group so far. I'd love to see it twice that size. Um, But it's been such a wonderful place where women feel like they belong as scholars in evangelical spaces. And this year's ETS felt completely different to me. There were women all over the place who were greeting each other like long lost friends who were coming up to me and saying, Carmen, thanks for all your work. And I did so little. Like I started the group and I post now and then. Like I didn't feel like it took that much effort. So while it, it might have felt like an uphill battle 10 years ago, it feels like we're in this wonderful moment where there's momentum and there, there are easy networking tools that are, that are making a difference. Hey everybody, Richard here, producer of The Disruptors. InterVarsity Press wanted me to let you know that you can go to ivpress.com slash disruptors with an E to learn more about IVP books and get 30% off all titles with free shipping. And now let's go back to the conversation.
So you said earlier that two thirds of the Bible is Old Testament. I think it's three quarters. Three quarters. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's of, a lot. There's okay. a lot. I mean, there's a lot of buildup. I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what would success look like for you? Uh, um, would it be that like three quarters of the sermons are based in the Old Testament? <laughs> so like you are this passionate advocate for this canonical interpretation of the Bible where we bring mm-hmm. these two texts together where people want to tear them apart and people want to castigate the the God of the Old Testament is being and Jesus is being gracious. Mm-hmm. But like if you said, okay, at the end of my career, people have started to read my stuff and they start to take the Old Testament seriously. What would that look like? Because I can count one of the reasons, you know, actually I'll ask you that question and then I'll just stop. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we could we could stand to see a lot more sermons out of the Old Testament. And I think pastors can stop worrying that people will find them the Old Testament arcane or irrelevant. I th- and there's a there's a back to Tisha's book because that's what I'm in the middle of reading. Um, she has a story that she tells about a professor who has a student come to him and say, um, you know, I would try to do the reading for class, but it's so boring. And the professor's response is, "It's not boring. You're boring." <laughs> I love that part, and I'm I'm like storing it away to use it next time a student talks to me about boring. I think if we find the Old Testament boring, it's not boring. We're boring. We are we are failing to enter into the story to such a degree that it comes alive for us. You know, we're opening up the doors of the wardrobe and stepping inside, and we're all we're getting is mothballs. But what we should be getting is empowered by the Spirit. We step into the Old Testament, and we find ourselves in Narnia. And there's, you know, it's snowing. We're in another world. If, if we're not having that experience, we're not attending closely enough to the text. There seems to be a greater awareness of the need for female voices in um, theological circles at at least evangelical colleges and seminaries. Are you hopeful about the future? Are you discouraged? I'm very hopeful. Yeah, I see change. I I I see changing attitudes. There are, of course, people who still feel like, you know, they'll use words like um, politically correct. Oh, you have to have a woman on the panel because it's the politically correct thing to do. I never use the word politically correct because I feel like this has nothing to do with, I don't even know who decides what's politically correct. This is a gospel issue. This is an issue of hearing from the whole church. So incorporating minority voices, women's voices into spaces where we're talking about Bible and theologies just seems like an obviously gospel thing to do to me. I do see there's an increasing number of women, but mm-hmm. I feel like that women of color are still lagging behind mm-hmm. in that. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know if that's something that you've noticed. And yeah. do you have any, I mean, this, I guess I always want, I hate it when people ask me, hey, black person, solve black people problems. So I don't want to <laughs> ask you to solve the problem of women yeah. of color not not being as represented in evangelical evangelical spaces in yeah. theological disciplines. But have you noticed it? And is there a conversation mm-hmm. going on about that? That's probably a better question yeah. than saying, what's your solution? Yeah. But have yeah. you all noticed that although we're growing, that we're like a largely white number that's growing? And is there oh, any totally. conversations about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I say 10 years ago in ETS, I would look around. I could be in a room of 50 people and only two of us were women. 
in the room, you know, depending on what paper session you were attending. But then if I'd look around the room again and say, okay, where are the people of color? Often there'd be no one. So I feel like as hard as it has been to be a woman in those spaces, to be African-American man or woman is like way, like, like there are way fewer. So, so it's a huge frontier. And I, and I think, um, you know, I'm doing what I can to have to say, like, who else needs to be here in this group? Like, let's invite as many people as possible. But I think s- some changes have to happen, you know, at the leadership level. I'm in, I'm on the steering committee for one of the sections of ETS. And when papers get suggested, like, oh, who shall we invite to speak? I am always, the first thing I'm always asking is, do we have women? Do we have people of color? Like, we've got to expand the conversation. And it's not a matter of being politically correct. It's a matter of, again, gospel wholeness. And I, I've observed, what I've observed is, we think of our friends. Like, when, when somebody says, oh, do you know anybody who could present a paper on such and such, we're thinking of our friends and our our social circles of friendship are still so largely white or so largely people who look like we do that it's really hard to break outside of that. I don't think we take seriously how few people don't consider it because they don't think it's for them. And so yeah. if there is a Latina woman or an Asian American woman yeah. um, or an African American woman who's in my class who shows theological promise, mm-hmm. I am very intentional about saying, have you considered this as a career? Yeah. Now, I warn her because, you know, we live in a fallen world. This isn't always going to be easy. Mm-hmm. And But I do think that we tend to think of the people who we've seen do something as the people who should do it. And yeah. so I always encourage people to say, if you have gifted women in your class, ask them. Yes. And so... Yeah. I mean, you heard you heard the story of how I got into biblical studies and it was somebody saying, Carmen, I think you should do this. And so if we're doing that for our students and seeking out students of color, I think that's a, a huge part of the solution. We need to give our female scholars and female pastors the space to engage in their life and ministry in the ways they feel God has called them to engage and not force them into, okay, you're a woman, you don't want to get pigeonholed, so do only purely academic stuff. So you're not seen as a woman's issues person. Or you're a woman, we need you to represent all women in the discipline, so we need you to be our spokesperson. But allow women to discern what God has called them to do. And even if they aren't the ones who are advocates, it's our job as people, who, like Paul said, who are bearing one, bearing one of the burdens to bear that burden with our sisters and, and do what we can. If they, don't have, if they don't feel like they need to take the bullets, then we take them. She said, I didn't get to decide whether or not I dealt with the gender issues as a woman in the academy. I had to. What does it mean for the church to value the message of the Old Testament 
and to see the, the Old and the New Testament as together telling the story of what God is doing in the world. I wanted to hear that and, he, and allow her to have space to make that case to be an Old Testament scholar. But she's not a disembodied person. And so she's an Old Testament scholar as a woman in an academy that, had, that for different reasons finds her disruptive. In some more conservative spaces, her gender is sometimes a problem. And in some more progressive spaces, her theology is a problem. As an African-American who is saying that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that we need to read it and understand it and obey it. But that same Bible that we are told to read and obey says something about how we should treat one another. And we need to use what this Bible says to inform how the church functions. And so we're not doing the same things, but I think there's a certain kinship in how our work progresses. I can give up now, I keep going. Settle down, not ever knowing. Won't let my history bury me. Cause I ain't doing this just for me. But I'm sounding off. Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. We will be grateful if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. You can follow me at Esau McCauley. And you can check out the best and most disruptive offerings from InterVarsity Press authors at ivpress.com. We out.